Hello and welcome all to this milestone episode of the world's only Timothy Zahn novel recap show hosted by Generation X for Generation X. This is Thronderdome, and folks, we've made it. You've made it. I'm so proud of you. You have made it through the entirety, almost, of Heir to the Empire, uh, published in 1991 as the very first Star Wars hardcover novel written by Timothy Zahn, revitalized the Star Wars franchise from its doldrums in the early 90s. You are almost there. This is it, the final episode in our very first season of Thronderdome. It's exciting. I'm excited. Ronnie, how are you feeling? I'm feeling bittersweet. Hmm, yes. Yes, I, I can understand that. That's It's almost like saying goodbye to a dear friend. Except I mean, we're going to have to, like, uh, we'll have to do, like, 14 more of these books, so. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of counting our uh, chickens before they've hatched, really, by getting all maudlin about it. That's true. So I guess technically what we really are, we are one-third of the way through the original commitment we made to read the Thrawn trilogy. Uh, and then we started making all kinds of crazy commitments to read even worse books, uh, which I do think. Oh, I had a good idea for another one, and I'll, I'll talk to I'll talk to you off air. We won't spoil the surprise. Um, but yes, yeah, so here here we are the the final the final stretch the home stretch, uh, and I guess Ryan, did you? We we are going to have a kind of like recap our thoughts, our kind of like what we took away from all this uh, segment after we finished the recap. But did you want to say anything before we uh, begin recounting the climactic uh, uh, end of Heir to the Empire? Well, I will say that I am pleasantly surprised by the end of the book because I had some uh, misgivings that I articulated in the previous episode about how mm-hmm. there's the uh, Zahn is running out of space to, like have a big space battle and stuff like that. And it turns out he had just enough space to have a big space battle. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I thought he, I thought it ended up being a good job. Uh, and we'll see as we, as we, as we, reca- as we recap it, I have two items I need to get off my chest or otherwise I, I won't be able to focus on, on recapping, which is of course its own skill, probably really a lot harder than actually writing really recapping. But anyway, um, a couple things to get off my chest. Last episode in the Scooby-Doo versus Jabberjaw debate, I said that Frank Welker voiced both Fred and Scooby-Doo. This is not entirely correct. The classic run of Scooby-Doo, the dog was voiced by Don Messick. Frank Welker has since voiced Scooby-Doo in some of the kind of reboots and retreads, but that that wasn't a fair characterization, and I had a misapprehension that it was Frank Welker the entire time. Also, a listener I hope you and sent friend flowers of- to his oh. widow. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, all right? Get off my case. Uh, Also, a friend of the show and listener, Lawrence, uh, pointed out to me that uh, he was disappointed that I think both of us, uh, Ronnie, forgot that Wedge actually is in The Empire Strikes Back. Wedge is in all three original trilogy movies. Uh, He's piloting the snowspeeders on Hoth in Empire Strikes Back. So we neglected to mention that. Mea culpa. Uh, and hopefully everyone can forgive us and, and open your hearts to the, the literary flourishes, the incredible landscape and mindscape painted by the prose of Timothy Zahn here at the culmination of Heir to the Empire. Chapter 30. Let me find my notes. <laughs> here they are. Chapter 30. <laughs> so we pick up right where we left off, actually, with the last time with uh, Luke using his lightsaber to uh, take down the structural supports of this big archway where they had kind of bottled the stormtroopers uh, and evidently the chariot assault vehicle. Because we open chapter 30 in the aftermath of all that with Talon Card kind of taking in the scene, looking at the sight of the crumpled nose of the chariot assault vehicle poking out from the rubble. So apparently it, it did get caught. I, I remember we were unclear on what happened to the chariot assault vehicle, but it got smashed up. Uh, he and Aves share an exchange about how Luke is impressive, even without his force powers. Um, Card is melancholy, though, because he knows the jig is well and truly up now. There is no way he's going to be able to paper over his involvement in this incident. Thrawn will instantly figure out that he had Skywalker the whole time. Truly, Ronnie. 
this is the last day of summer camp. Uh, Card walks over to Luke and Han, who have just gotten the wounded Lando packed up into a speeder to take him back to the Falcon, back at uh, Card's facility. They're actually fairly chummy, uh, as, you know, the, the the time to play it, you know, cagey with whether or not they're, they're going to be on uh, each other's side is, is just gone forever here, as everyone kind of reckons with the consequences. Uh, Card asks Han to get the New Republic to let him borrow a uh, Mon Calamari Star Cruiser to help him move his operation off-world. Uh, Han kind of non-committally agrees to that, because <laughs> it does seem like kind of a heavy ask for, uh, you know, for, for, for that. Um, so then Han and Luke get in another speeder, and, you know, they zoom off. They're going to get back to the Falcon, you know, load up Wounded Lando and um, be on their way. And Card, Card begins, to, he starts making a plan of how he would steal that cruiser, that the New Republic were going to let him borrow so to, to send over to Thrawn to maybe soothe the sting a little, but eh, he realizes that it really is pointless. He's just he's a marked man for good as far as the Empire is concerned. So Han, Luke, Lando, and the droids are all aboard the Millennium Falcon, which takes off, initially sort of assuming they're bound for uh, Coruscant, uh, just because, of course, as, as more and more rumors are flying about stuff going down, they, you know, they kind of want to get back there. Um... But uh, Han actually has a different idea. They're going to go over, over to the Sluis Van, since that's the nearest major Republic center with decent medical facilities for Lando. And he also thinks his buddy Luke needs some downtime. Luke is apparently still, remember this is happening you know, just after all of the, uh, the kerfuffle in Hilliard City, so Luke is still all covered with poison sumac welts. Uh, and, and, and Han seems to think you know a little rest downtime would do good for him. I, I, I agree with Han, as I typically do. Um, so again, the subject of Grand Admirals comes up, and this I thought was a, a nice window into like what they're like why that was such like a thing with Lando and, and Han, because apparently the uh, the Republic has quote accounted for all of the known Grand Admirals, which I assume means you know murdered or assassinated or something. So apparently, this was a widely known title in the the uh, the Galactic Empire hierarchy, <clears throat> but uh, they had assumed they had taken care of all of them. So they get about uh, 12 I, I clicks. I think this passage uh, illustrates some of the faults of the book, which is we're in the, like the 30, 30 out of 32 chapters, and there's still, uh, they still don't know General Thrawn's name. Yeah. Grand Admiral, sorry. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, does, it, it beggars belief. I'm sorry. There's just really, if you have like an active fleet of starships zooming around and presumably like doing business on, you know, various planets to supply them and whatnot, like word's going to get around. I'm sorry. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, but they, uh, they're, they're flying off. They get, uh, as the book says, 12 kilometers up off the planet's surface. And then Luke can feel his connection to the force return as a surge of awareness and strength. And I think we, I don't remember if this is in some of the, the lost levels notes that I've been reading or what, but I, I think Zahn made the point that, you know, people got upset at him about how, like, well, nothing can block the Force. And so uh, Zahn has explained before that really what the Isalamiri do is they dampen any given organism's ability to tap into the Force. So the Force is still there. It just keeps anyone from using it. I guess that messes with their midi-chlorians. But anyway, so Luke is far enough away from the Isalamiri that... The more that I think about the Yellow Samari, the more I think of, think it's just like a, a Superman's kryptonite thing, and we're going to see the Yellow Samari a lot. So <laughs> Zahn doesn't have to, like, yeah. write the Force. Right, right. That he, he can, yeah, stick with the... Well, because that, that that's always the problem, like, with Superman or with Luke Skywalker, because Superman's all-powerful... Luke Skywalker could do pretty much everything if he if he has the Force, so you gotta come up with excuses for why you can't use the Force, right? <laughs> right, like why he's not doing that. Yeah, I would imagine we are gonna see the Isalamiri uh, some more. Um, so they have, uh, Luke and Han have a little bit of a uh, back and forth where Han, Han kind of pulls the little, like, so who was your little girlfriend back there routine about Mara Jade? Um, but, you know, Luke is, you know, he's like, hey, you guys work really, really well together back there. And Luke does the, she's not my girlfriend with the, like, yeah, there's that was another, because we had, There's another know. part I, I really like, which is uh, uh, Luke is describing what it's like getting the force back. And it says, it, it's like being able to see again after having been blind. Han snorted under his breath. Yeah, I know how that is, he said wryly. 
I guess you would. Luke looked at him, and it's like, yeah, remember that time he was blind for like five minutes in Return of the Jedi? That was great, wasn't it? <laughs> that was exactly like this. That was that was exactly like having your your connection with the energy that undergirds life in the galaxy cut off, Han. Yeah, just and like while that. I'm on the subject, I I liked uh, that they invoked uh, the Bacta tank. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And also, <laughs> and also, uh, and also, when they're discussing Lando, uh, they they plan on having the droids uh, spend time with Lando. Despite the fact that Lando says that he's had had enough of C-3PO. So it's like, <laughs> so if there's an overriding principle of this book, it's that everyone hates C-3PO. I think so, including the author. <laughs> we have, we have uh, definitely determined. Um. Either he has a problem with C-3PO or what C-3PO represents, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, we might. Hopefully, we don't have another Orson Scott card situation on our hands with the uh, with the the God uh, Timothy's on. I would be I would be really bummed if we didn't have that. I doubt it, though. I doubt it. Timothy does not seem like that kind of guy. Um. So Luke, uh, they have a, a little robots, if you know what I mean. <laughs> are you are you making the little swishy hand motion? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> So they, they determine they're going to go to Sluice Vaughn to dunk uh, Lando in the back to tank and just kind of chill for a little bit. Um, and that's where we leave off there, where we smash cut. We, we get, a, we get a bit of dramatic irony uh, where uh, Han says, So enjoy Sluice Vaughn while you can. It'll probably be the last peace and quiet you'll get for a while. Oh, that's right. And, 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 we and the it's readers funny know. because it's actually not. It's the, boy, it's going to be the opposite of peace and quiet. Whew. If if Grand Admiral Thrawn is involved, see that that's that's that smart guy. writing. It is smart writing, and I've I I credit Betsy with that. I think she said, "Hey, this will be a good line there." I'm I'm giving credit to Betsy for that one, just on the gut feeling. <laughs> so speaking of uh, uh, Admiral Thrawn, we uh, we cut over to the bridge of the Chimera, where Thrawn and Peleon are overseeing the final preparations for the Sluis Vaughn strike. The assembled fleet, as Peleon reflects that the assembled fleet is worthy of the old days. Five Star Destroyers, 12 Strike-class cruisers, 22 Karak-class light cruisers, and 30 squadrons of TIE Fighters. And in the middle of all that, the battered old A-class bulk freighter with that cloaking device installed in it. Uh, so Thrawn, in the midst of uh, kind of making these final preparations, asks for uh, what's the latest status report from Mirker. And uh, Playon says that it's, uh, well, it was a routine report, sir, time log, 14 hours and 10 minutes ago. Thrawn immediately turned to face him. 14 hours, he repeated, his voice suddenly very quiet and very deadly. I left orders for them to report every 12. Uh, so that's, you know, after a little bit of, you know, Playon sort of thinks like, uh, maybe they forgot to report in or they're having trouble with the transmitter. no. You know, Thrawn has seen right through it. They, he knows exactly what's happened. They've been either destroyed or compromised, and that means it had to have been Luke Skywalker they were chasing the whole time. Ugh. So. Uh, there's, a, there's a pretty uh, good line in uh, Peleon's internal uh, narration, which is, uh, Stormtroopers don't forget things. Ever. I, you're really, you're really suggesting that, uh, the stormtroopers are more competent than they actually are. I I do like that. That's another way that Zon is true to the movies, where everyone talks about the stormtroopers as though they are a super competent strike force, and they do not behave that way whatsoever. So maybe you know Zon's just keeping it real to the to the original source material, you know. Uh, but uh, so Thrawn puts it together that. Uh, not only would it have to have been Skywalker, but he would have had to have had aid from Card since he was hobbled by the Salamiri. So uh, it's really, uh, the as he says here, um, you know, Peleon suggests like, well, maybe we could peel off a couple ships to go back to, to Mirker. And Thrawn took a deep breath, let it out slowly. No, he said, his voice steady and controlled again. The Sluis Vaughn operation is our primary concern at the moment, and battles have been lost before in the presence or absence of a single ship. Card and his betrayal will keep for later. Which I think is some nice... I imagine that's foreshadowing for uh, some other developments in the trilogy. 
I think it'd be funny if he kept on saying, like, instead of later, he just says next book. <laughs> My vengeance will strike hard in 15 chapters time. <laughs> yeah, really, because it takes him pretty long to do shit in these books. That's, uh, that is a good point. Well, he's, he's all about planning and having it all, you know, having it all just so, uh, before... Before everything can, you know, be, uh, be, you know, go forward, which is, but hey, he's actually, he's set up all of his moving pieces and here it is. It's all, it's coming together. At least the first phase it's, it's coming together. The cloaking shield is turned on, then instructs them to proceed ahead of the rest of the fleet. And, uh, there we have Throng gives the final order to begin the assault, which takes us to chapter 31. And chapter 31 opens with, uh, I've got so much to <laughs> With, say about this beginning. Please, please, yeah, go, go, go ahead and t- take the wheel, Ronnie. What's, what's going on here with Wedge and Tilly's? Well, the, the first lines of the chapter are, Captain Affion of the escort frigate Larkas shook his head with thinly disguised contempt, glaring at Wedge from the depths of his pilot seat. You X-Wing hotshots, he growled. You've really got it made, you know that? Now, when I think of Wedge Antilles. You know how on uh, on Frasier, when they created the spinoff Frasier, they had to, like, soften the character so he could be a, a main character? And then they created, sure. like, then they created Niles, who was, like, like Frasier times two. Th- right, right, right. So, so if we establish that Luke is, like, kind of a hayseed redneck, then Wedge Antilles is hayseed redneck times two. <laughs> but he's a, he's a real hotshot. You know, he's. Like, I I just do like the uh, the idea that you have a captain of an escort frigate is jealous of the guys who sit in the stinky, cramped cockpit in their spaceship. Like you can get up and walk around. You're on a frigate. Like that's nice. Yeah, um, but Wedge is like a Top Gun. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. He's the 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 is <laughs> the the ultra elite. Uh, I do like that he's drinking tea through all this. So we have hot chocolate and tea are both classic attested. redneck drink. Tea. <laughs> you think it's, you think it's iced sweet tea? Sweet tea. Yeah, that's the good stuff. You don't even know. This is a, this is a little preview of our uh, of our Thronderdome debate segment later, actually. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, so they, this this captain is kind of giving Wedge the business uh, for about a page, which is fun because uh, you know. It, Wedge is such a millhouse. He he deserves the bullying that he gets. Um, although I did think th- I did just, think it was funny. Can we just think, take like, a step back for a moment? Can we can yes. we just uh, take a step back and and uh, like just look at what Wedge's role in the book overall has been? As far as I can tell, it's been uh, get a, a rumor about Kabath, and then this. Uh, he was also Han's wingman to meet Dravis. Oh, how could I ever beginning. forget that? How could, how could you forget a famous, intense Dravis scene like that? <laughs> so yes, yeah, he's done the three, three things and none of them have been particularly important. Yes, yes. Uh, he gets a good, he gets a couple of good shots in, in the, in this little kerfuffle though. Um, because Wedge is the one who notices a uh, big old bulk freighter without any escort. And so he kind of, that's a little curious. It's behaving a little strangely. So he gives a little sensor sweep and finds that its cargo holds are totally empty. And yet, its trajectories and the way it's moving as it's sort of cruising in toward the Sluisvon uh, shipyards would indicate a full hold. Very curious. So the crusty old captain notices Wedge's expression, and he actually shifts gears into into serious mode. Uh... And he's like, all right, enough, uh, you know, fucking around. Like, we got to find out what's going on with this. Uh, Wedge had been trying to get into the, I guess, the, the more uh, more powerful sensor networks to get a read on it. But um, uh, he doesn't have the priorities. You know, the network is, of course, jammed with all the comms going on. But uh, Captain Affion can, can uh, reroute the encryptions. He gets in there and he finds the report that the freighter gave. They, uh, it said it was jumped by pirates, had to dump its cargo to escape. And now seeks repairs at the shipyard, but Wedge's spidey sense is tingling. He's he's not so ready to just like leave this, you know, leave this alone. So he calls up Rogue Squadron to suit up and fly out and just give it a pass. You know, go take their X wings and just see what's going on over there. 
and they all do. They they get out there. Uh, One thing see, I uh, like about oh, I, uh, Rogue Squadron is that there's uh, eleven of them uh, plus uh, Wedge. And yet, throughout the rest of the book, we only hear from one other member of Rogue Squadron. Who who doesn't even get a name. They just call him Rogue Five, right? Yeah. Or does he? Really yeah, weird. yeah. <laughs> it is odd. If I, were, um, if I was on, I would be naming all of those little fuckers so I could get some uh, merchandising money. That's right. Um, I mean, at least you could do better than Porkins. I mean, come on. Uh, he's he's plus so, representation. <laughs> that's that's a very good point. So Ronnie, I, I have a little a special uh, Easter egg for you. In the and while they're figuring out what's going on, they're looking up the records on the the freighter that uh, Affion says. Okay, it's called the Narti Testu, out of Nelak Krom. And uh, here it is. Here it is, Ronnie. The last, the last Tampaite of the book. This is uh, th- that planet name, Nelak Krom, is in honor of his Tampa buddy, Mark Callan. Boy, I sure hope he's saving some Tampaites for the next book. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm hoping that they have an annotated version because otherwise, like half the show content is out the out the window. We're gonna have to. I don't know. We're gonna have to actually do. Yeah, your USB will be gone. <laughs> it's gonna be. Yeah. Oh, be, anyway, you'll be more dead weight than usual. <laughs> I mean, the, the one thing I brought to all this is that I control access to the notes and now that's going to be gone if we don't have uh, an annotated edition of the rest of the I really doubt I'll have to I'll take a look but I really doubt it um, in any case uh, so Wedge and Rogue Squadron they're flying their X-Wings over near that uh, that mysterious freighter and as they approach an explosion blasts the cargo bay doors off the thing revealing a mass, a boiling mass of Tie Fighters. It's it's going, it's happening. They're they're there. So I guess the cloaking shield was like, was uh, was cloaking all the Tie Fighters and all the mole miners, which were stashed in there. Which we'll get to. They they keep being referred to as truncated cones by the Republic guys. They keep using that exact same phraseology. No, specifically which, Wedge calls them that. They call okay, yeah. Well, I think it appeared in the. Uh, the, the narration text at one point. Other people well. call it that, but it starts with Wedge. It starts with Wedge. So, they, again, we can blame Wedge for that. <laughs> You're right. Trust me, I keep tabs but, on this shit. So, so Wedge and, uh, and Rogue Squadron, they shift into, into battle mode, and we cut over to the Millennium Falcon, which is just, you know, happily sauntering its way into the Sluice Vaughn system. They cleared the outer defense network. Uh, the bu- and the bureaucratic overload that passed for control at Sluisvon these days, as the text says here. Uh, Han is, uh, you know, just about to... Uh, they're, they're getting a bearing on, you know, where they're going to come into dock, but then they, uh, they pick up on their sensors a ship explosion. And when he says, uh, Luke, he shouted down the cockpit corridor, got a ship explosion, I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> Which, I don't know, maybe let the Sluisvon authorities check it out before you go there. But they don't even have time to do that because, wham, a turbo laser smacks the butt of the Falcon right there. Star Destroyers. Oh, my God. So now comes a space action sequence, which are never very much fun to try and recap. And, uh, and I, I would not do a good job and no one would really have like a great idea what's going on. But I think we can give you kind of the gist of what's going on in Thrawn's plan here. So inside that freighter that carried those TIE fighters and the truncated cones. You know, the truncated cones are going. No one quite knows what's up with that. Everyone's very focused on the TIE fighters and then the approaching Star Destroyers. So these little truncated cones are zooming their way toward uh, a bunch of the uh, ships that have been retooled for cargo duty. So these are like warships. If you recall, because of the Bifash relief effort, the New Republic had kind of stripped down a bunch of warships to make them cargo ships with barely any crews on them. Huh? Again, part of Thrawn's master plan. So these truncated cones are those mole miners. They're going to go, they're each carrying a squad of stormtroopers. And so what they're going to do is go and zoom over to land on the starships, like where there's like a port or, uh, or otherwise access into the control spaces and bridge spaces on those starships and cut into the skin of the starship with their plasma cutter minor things to get the, uh, the uh, stormtroopers in there who will then commandeer the vehicles and uh, steal them. 
so while all this is going pretty on, decent plan. Uh, it's a pretty decent plan. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, Thrawn and the, and, and his capital ships, you know, his, his fleet of star destroyers are there mostly to keep the, the escort ships. Cause there are still some capital warships, you know, destroyers and cruisers that the Re- Republic has there, but, uh, they're going to be kept busy with the, uh, with the M- Imperial forces while the, mole miners do their work and they steal like i think uh, at one point it said like 43 of the mole miners had made contact with their target ships so they're about to make off with a huge chunk of the new republic yeah i think at some point thrawn tells polyon that they're there to gain ships not lose them exactly yes um so the, there's there's a few notable moments in all this, uh, and feel free to jump in with any that really jumped out to you, Arani. But one that I really liked. Oh, was, I have one. Uh, uh, the, the, oh. There was a space trooper. It's a yeah, trooper yeah, yeah, yeah. Zero G armor with uh, mini proton torpedo capability. Yeah, so you can really he really fucks up the Falcon with a couple of those. Uh, I thought that that was pretty exciting. Um, also, I have my favorite line of the uh, the. The segment, which is R2 beeped again in acknowledgement, but it wasn't a very optimistic beep. <laughs> I do wonder I how you I want to know how you could do an optimistic beep. <laughs> right. What is what is the optimistic beep versus the uh, the, the downbeat beep? Yeah. Um. And, and I know that like this is how he has uh, R2-D2 express emotions, and like picking at this would just be... Foolish, but there there does come a time where certain uh, certain passages and and uh, sentences just become ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, and and again, I, I think that's like I think that's another example of the the things that are ridiculous about this book are largely the things that are ridiculous about Star Wars. It's just kind of it comes with the territory. Well, yeah, I don't think um, you could have R two D two be a uh, character with any level of agency without doing stupid shit like this. Right, right. It's just, it's just the, yeah, it's just how it goes. Um, one moment I really liked was that, uh, as the, you know, the Republic Navy has kind of gotten its uh, shit together enough to start engaging the star destroyers and the chimera itself is getting hit pretty hard, uh, such that the, uh, starboard shields are down on the star destroyer. So Thrawn commands all of his batteries to concentrate fire on that, Republic frigate that had been pounding them until its own starboard side is totally destroyed and all of its weapons disabled. And then he orders the tractor beam crews to grab onto it and pull it alongside the chimera to protect its unshielded side. I thought that was pretty cool. That's a, that's, that's, that's a neat usage of these fantasy technologies that these ships are supposed to have. And Palaon notes, as <laughs> like a little bit here where Palaon notes that the tractor crew have, uh, they've shown remarkable, a remarkable increase in efficiency and competence lately. To which I can only say, well, summary execution works. That is a a, a viable motivation technique, apparently. Because if you recall from a couple episodes ago, Thrawn personally shot that guy who fucked up the Luke Skywalker capture in the tractor beam crew. Chris shot Peterson? Chris Peterson, that's right. I couldn't believe I forgot his name. Uh, may he rest in peace. Um, so the, the, the death I wonder of Chris if he's Peterson, named after some guy he knows in Tampa. It is. I checked, and he is. <laughs> it's just a Star Wars spelling of the guy Chris Peterson. Um, but Chris Peterson's sacrifice was not in vain. All of his friends who were horrified by what happened to him now uh, are very good at operating the tractor beams. Um, so forty, yeah, 43 of those 50 mole miners have successfully attached to the barely crewed Republic ships, and now they have started moving those ships out of the shipyards to get behind Imperial lines and escape with them. Um, Luke and Han are flying around in the Millennium Falcon, trying to at least disable the engines. You know, like if we can keep them from escaping, then, you know, maybe we can foil his plan. Um, but so they're fruitless. They're firing on like the big coolant cables and stuff like that. But the, the Millennium Falcon just doesn't have the juice to really do it. Uh, Luke starts to come up with a stupid idea of jumping out and just wailing on it with his lightsaber. And Han, you know, notes that, well, you, you don't have a zero G suit. <laughs> It's not, or rather, a, a vacuum suit. That's not a good idea. Um, Luke, you're but... wearing coveralls that don't cover all. <laughs> you're in no shape to be going out there. I do like that. Like your Luke's, face is Luke's, all puffy. I, 
Your face is all puffy. Luke's two ideas for the last two, you know, flaps he's been involved with are just, just hit it with my lightsaber. Just hit it. <laughs> um, but Han has a has a moment where he figures it out, right? So if you recall on the uh, the Nicklon raid, <clears throat> where the uh, the Empire first stole all of Lando's mole miners, there was uh, communications jamming, right? And everyone thought that was like part of the attack or something. It was part of the the ambush. But there's no jamming right now. And Han puts it together. There, there's no jamming right now because, and to sort of finish his thought, Lando has hauled his sorry ass up into the cockpit and explains that the mole miners are operated remotely by radio. And he still knows the command codes. So, and then, you know, Lando, <clears throat> using the, uh, the Millennium Falcon's, you know, transceiver, transmits the command codes to the mole miners that are attached to the uh, you know the bridge portals in uh, on these big capital ships, uh, and you know the the bridges and control rooms of these you know big frigates and whatnot, and orders them to turn their mining plasma beams on at full blast. So instead of them just sitting on the surface having cut through the hull to allow the stormtroopers in, they start burrowing through the ships, wrecking the control systems, coming out the other side in little explosions. Totally and rendering all of these massive combat frigates dead in the water because they've completely had their brains blasted out of the control panels and whatnot by these mole miners. And you know what? Hats off to, to Zahn. That was pretty cool. I really liked that, like, everything seemed to be coming together for Thrawn's master plan. He was really going to get away with it. And... Really, at the last moment, well, I think you have to credit something Han that and had Lando, been not uh, Zahn. Well, Zahn had the idea to make Han and Lando do that. I'm saying Wait, I thought what? it was a very effectively. I'm hey, I said Zahn, not Thrawn. Timothy Zahn wrote this book, dude. Han Solo no, didn't write this book. He did what? What? What do you, so what do you think saying I'm saying? You're saying that there's this author guy that like creates all of these situations for these characters, and these characters aren't <laughs> behaving as, with agency as natural as natural actors in an environment. <laughs> is this wow? Is this the big reveal of the podcast for you? I thought Zahn was just this dude that was commenting in the notes. <laughs> he thought he was a super fan. He, he thought he was that guy who listened to the audio tapes, and was uh, they brought him on to do the, the. No, no, it turns out that this was all uh, Timothy Zahn's ideas and stuff. You know, this was this was his uh, his doing. Um, <laughs> well, then why don't we just call this like a fucking Timothy Zahn adventure? I mean, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, so anyway, the uh, the the Imperial, of course, attack is uh, is 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 blunted. Um, Thrawn takes it all with composure and knowing that the day is lost, he orders a withdrawal. And while this is a setback, he seems not to think this means an end of his plans to destroy the new Republic. After all, they still have the dark Jedi, Joris Kbeoth. They still control the emperor's storehouse on Wayland. They still have the Isalamiri. They still have the Sparty cylinders, all these other elements that were in there. So Thrawn, you know, Palaon was expecting you know, a, a fit of rage, kind of, you know, Hitler in the bunker style at this. But Thrawn keeps it together, and hell, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why we love the guy, right? Um, so then we come to... He does really put a button on it, though, by saying, you're expecting perhaps I'd order an all-out attack, that I would seek to cover our defeat in a frenzy of false and futile heroics? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, let me explain exactly what, we're, what, what, we, what we're, we got here. Um... Well, that's the end of the Sluis Fawn strike. Uh, and we move on to uh, chapter 32, which kind of opens up with the, with the mopping up, basically. The, uh, you know, they, they, they this is really round short. up whatever... St- yeah, it's, it's really just a little coda. Uh, they round up whatever stormtroopers are left. They, they hunt down a few more of the, uh, the space. There were eight remaining space troopers. So since they had the zero-G suits, they allowed them to keep fighting. They, they kept making trouble for everybody until they were finally hunted down and destroyed. Uh... Like six were hunted down and destroyed, the other two eventually self-destructed. One managing to cripple a corvette in the process, and I, and I, I liked that kind of detail because it was like, okay, these guys are still motivated. They know that they're not gonna make it, but for whatever reason, they believe in the project enough 
to still, you know, try to try to make it's it like as Imperial messy as possible Japan. for them to go down. Exactly. Yeah, it's like those <laughs> soldiers hold up on a you know Philippine island until the seventies, just occasionally booby trapping some poor Filipino villager. Uh, but uh, so Captain Effion is kind of uh, taking it. You know, he's sort of surveying the damage. Not exactly what you call a resounding victory, Captain Affion grunted. Uh, Going to take a couple months' work just to rewire all the control circuits. Um, but, of course, they did... Uh, uh, and, this, and this sets up, I think, the... Yeah, uh, the, he says uh, destroying the, the, the all the ships in order to save them was not exactly the optimal solution. Yeah. Han threw a look at Luke. You sound like Counselor Failure, <laughs> he accused Affion. The other nodded. Exactly. Um, but uh, there was a trilling on the intercom at just about you know exactly that uh, that uh, point where there's a yeah very coincidentally of talking about failure (laughs) there's a incoming call for captain solo and it's leia leia's calling and i thought this was a i thought this was a really sweet moment um there's a slight pause a familiar and sorely missed voice came on han it's leia Leia, Han said, feeling delighted and probably slightly foolish-looking grin spread across his face. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, Han might be all, you know, gruff and everything, but he really does. He is really a softie and a sweetheart uh, underneath it all. Uh, but he's he's kind of confused, like, why are you calling from Coruscant? And she's like, uh, yeah, 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 I took care of that other stuff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and then... <laughs> and then... <laughs> she explains... After Han asked, well, what's wrong? He heard her take a deep breath. Admiral Akbar has been arrested and removed from command on charges of treason. Bum, bum, bum. But, uh, yeah, so that's oh, really... Shit. That's the cliffhanger ending that they're on. The, we, as Luke says, we could be on the edge of civil war here. And so, uh, yeah, well, we're not going to let that happen, Han told him with confidence he didn't feel. We haven't gone through a war and back just to watch some overambitious Bothan wreck it. How are we going to stop him? Han grimaced. Well, Han, we'll uh, you used something. a hard B with Bothan there. That's not okay. That's a real, yeah. This, once again, you know, he's showing a little spacism. Um, Han grimaced. We'll think of something. To be continued. And that's and there the it book. Is. That's the book. <laughs> so I think I think you're right, Ronnie, that the... I too was a little worried with like, are they going to have like a kind of a, you know, a, you know, a, a big, uh, a big finish. And there's actually some notes about that. Uh, and so let me see, let me find my bookmarks here. Okay. Uh, aha. Yes. So uh, here we have a note from Betsy, our beloved Betsy uh, says here, Tim reminds me that his original outline had the book end with Luke's escape but that I requested something bigger, saying his proposed finish wasn't exciting enough to close out a Star Wars adventure. The climactic clash at Sluis Vaughn was the result. As well as being a space battle worthy of the giant screen, it also ties together a number of seemingly minor plot elements Tim had been setting in place throughout the book. The shortage of freighters that sent Han to the smugglers, the theft of the mole miners, Lando's presence on the scene, and more. BM. Um, so I guess this is kind of a matter I mean, of like... Right. I, She's right, and I'm wondering, like, would was was Zahn's original idea to open the second book with the Sluis Vaughn strike? Because it does seem like that's like an actual plot point he was going to have to do. Uh, yeah, it just it I just guess seems so. Like, It'd be the yeah. equivalent of like the Battle of Hoth or something. Right, right. That opens with the yeah, 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 yeah. But I think Betsy had the right idea. Like, I mean, for one, I do think it's important for a Star Wars movie to end with a big space battle. I, you know, I, I, that's cool. That's part of, you know, that's a big part of why I was there for it when I was into Star Wars. Um, you but, mean when uh, you were still into Star Wars? When when I was still into Star Wars. Yeah, back when I was into Star Wars. Um, no, you're into Star but, Wars now. Uh, you're doing a Star Wars podcast. Okay, let's not... I'm not gonna... All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Anyway... Um, <laughs> But there is uh, there is an afterword to uh, to all this uh, from Betsy, which I would really I would really like to read uh, because I think it's really cool and I don't know I really like Betsy a lot I think she's great <laughs> I know that we kind of we kind of had a little fun at her expense at first but 
Uh, here's he has this to say, the afterward to the 20th anniversary special annotated edition. About this same time, 20 years ago, I incorporated Lucasfilm's final corrections on Heir to the Empire and sent the manuscript to the production department, confident that Tim had delivered a terrific story, but completely unaware of what an impact it would have on readers just a few months later. All of us at Bantam Spectra had loved the films, and we were honored that Lucasfilm would allow us to bring a new story to Star Wars fans. But would those fans want to read a new adventure rather than see it played out on the biggest screen possible? We had no way to know for sure. I remember the day we sat down in Lou Aranaika's office to brainstorm what author might be best for the project. We'd made a deal with Lucasfilm, but no book would exist until a suitable author was found and an outline approved. First and foremost, we wanted a writer who loved the films and would be excited to expand George Lucas's vision. We looked initially at people who were already being published at Bantam Spectra, wanting to give our own authors a first shot. Bantam published numerous popular writers at the time. This is true. Bantam Spectra was like the science fiction imprint in the 90s. I remember uh, you know, going to Books A Million or Barnes & Noble and always looking for the little, the, the blue swirly S on the spine because all my favorite science fiction books are being published by those people. Um, Bantam published numerous popular writers at the time, so Tim's was not the first name to come up. I knew he'd be right for the job, but was hesitant to mention him because we'd signed him up only a few months earlier and he was in the middle of writing the first of three novels we had under contract. Still, I knew Tim was a huge fan. And from working with him previously at Analog Magazine, where he'd won a Hugo Award for his story Cascade Point, and at Bain Books, where I'd been his editor on several novels, including the Cobra Trilogy and The Backlash Mission, I knew Tim had the writing skills to handle a big-picture Star Wars plot. Not only that, but he could also recreate the interplay among George Lucas's beloved characters, as well as generate new ones who would capture readers' interest. That trust was certainly borne out. In Heir to the Empire, Tim, quote, gave birth, end quote, to the unforgettable Mara Jade, Grand Admiral Thrawn, and Jorus Kabeoth, and was already thinking of names for the twins Leia would bear later in the trilogy. Heir to the Empire hit number one on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list, almost unheard of for a science fiction novel at that time, and went on to sell millions of copies. Tim and I were invited to Skywalker Ranch in San Rafael, California, and had the pleasure of meeting George Lucas who thanked Tim for his contribution to the Star Wars universe. Pleasure. Talk about somebody... <laughs> yeah. uh, talk about somebody walking on air. I swear I could have swung a cat underneath Tim's boots during that encounter. It was the publishing experience of a lifetime, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy or a better writer. Thank you, Tim. Betsy Mitchell, November 2010. I thought that was really sweet. I genuinely... I'm going to tell you something, Ronnie. I think having having finished the you know having finished the book, did going you cry? Would not really. I did not cry. No, I did not cry at this. There's nothing about dads. Uh, so listeners I didn't will cry. know that Daniel is an easy crier. <laughs> he cried during the children's movie uh, Coco, which I remind you is for babies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would remind the audience that uh, Coco. Look, I was a a young father. With a two-year-old child, we threw on Coco because I thought the colors would be enjoyable to her, and I no one warned me that it was a story about a man who died without being able to say goodbye to the little toddler girl that he loved so much, and 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 God damn it, how am I not supposed to? Be yeah, well, you by didn't that? die, so who cares? <laughs> but I could, I could die tomorrow. I always want to be able to say goodbye to my kid. You know, and not have to do it as a skeleton man. Anyway, this is yeah, not about well, me and my... you're gonna have to fucking do it as a skeleton man if you have to. <laughs> this is not about me and my relationship to Coco. I just wanted to give some appreciation. about you crying here. at the afterward to the hair of the Empire. <laughs> I just thought it was a nice human touch. I thought it was... I, I, I do like the fact that Betsy already had a working relationship with Tim. Um, and I was unaware that Tim was a Hugo award-winning writer. So he won a, a Hugo award for a short story. That's pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was a nice way to cap it all off. And, re- and Ronnie, here we're at the, we wanted to set aside some time listeners before we got on to the, uh, into the Thronderdome debate segment, but we wanted to set some time for kind of like final thoughts or like our main takeaways from the experience of reading this Star Wars novel. And Ronnie, I'm, I'm going to give you the floor first. 
because I think you've really, I think you've prepared a lot for this, or you have, you've had a lot of thoughts rattling around in your head about it. Okay, sure. Uh, I I would argue that uh, this book is a solid three stars. I said before that it, it was going to like gain or, or lose a half star depending on how it stuck the ending, but I I would say it stuck the ending because I I had the misconception that the uh, that the book would take like the last uh, twenty twenty five pages to like wrap up the the loose ends of and uh and set up the next book whereas in fact we got like 20 pages of space battle and then like two pages of setting up the next book which i right. much prefer yeah i think i think you're right that it made he made the right call or rather betsy made the right call and tim pulled it off yeah the book would be so much more disappointing if it ended with luke escaping <laughs> Right. It ends with Luke escaping by tearing down the uh, the Veterans Memorial Arch in Hilliard City. Yeah, that's that's not good. That's not good enough for Star Wars. Um, as far as the book itself, I'd say that it has uh, obviously strengths and weaknesses. I think strengths come with all the characterization of Thrawn. It's obviously where Zahn is most interested. Uh, yeah, clearly. Yeah, and I think he's less interested in stuff like uh, pregnant women. Which is why Leia gets kind of a, a cul-de-sac storyline in Kashyyyk. Mm-hmm. Which is really just him like showcasing what he thinks the Wookiee home planet is more than anything to do with Leia in particular. You bring up a good point that the the two things that Zahn seems less interested in are a little bit complementary there. Because, he's yeah, he's not super interested in, in the Leia storyline and for most of the book, he's really also not very interested in telling us what places look like or <laughs> what they are like, except for when he can do that as a way to not talk about the pregnant lady <laughs> and, and explore Kashyyyk. Because otherwise, he, I, I, yeah, it was a little light. He, he oh, sorry, is interested in doing space battles, though. And yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm no, I'm no space battle book expert, but. He writes them pretty competently. Like I was able to picture in my head a, a rough of a, a facsimile of what was going on. Yeah, I agree. Which is honestly not that I've I've read enough books where that is not done well that I can respect the talent and skill it takes in order to do that well. And I think he really. I, I think actually in the notes Betsy mentioned somewhere that one of the reasons why she thought Timothy would be good for the project is because he wrote in the kind of military SF subgenre, which involves a lot of, of course, describing spaceship battles. And I think she was spot on with that. Um, but uh, I guess to kind of expand on something you brought up, as long as you know, I, I guess I can go into my you know kind of big takeaways. Um, one thing. One thing I think that was going to be the hardest to pull off for anyone attempting to do this, like what is one of the big, one of the biggest things about Star Wars is its villains, right? Darth Vader. I was going to say racist is... caricatures, but sure. <laughs> That's that really comes in with the prequels more than anything else. Um, I'm talking the original trilogy, right? But but it's, it's villains, right? Like Darth Vader, Jabba the Hutt, the Emperor. These are all really vivid characters. They're very Boba Fett. They're very, well, he's not, they, at least they have like a striking visual presence. Yeah. But these are all very like they're vivid and they're they're characters. They're not just foils to be like the thing that the good guy has to defeat. They're interesting in their own right. They're compelling in their own right. And that to me, I think, was always going to be the hardest thing because, of course, all the, vil- the villains in Star Wars all got killed in Return of the Jedi. Like, actually, all of them that we mentioned, I guess except for IG-88, but every one of those other guys got killed. So, one of the problems Yeah, and uh, Zahn isn't have... the kind of hack that would just say, bring back Emperor Palpatine for no goddamn reason <laughs> with no explanation. <laughs> That's right. He has a little more integrity than that. Um, so, that was always going to be, I think, the, he- the really heavy lifting for a new Star Wars story that was attempting to be on the same kind of scale as the original trilogy was going to be creating a villain or villains that would, it would at least kind of hold a candle to the lunchbox characters, you know, 
And I and know I we really clown do... on how like uh, Thrawn is like a self-insert for Zahn, what with their similar names and everything, <laughs> but he's actually a pretty interesting character. And and the one thing you can say about the character, if nothing else, is that he's not a Darth Vader ripoff, with the which is always what the yeah. what the risk you run when you were making this book. That is that is a very good point, and I I think that Zahn had enough sense to know that he was going to have to zag where Vader zigged. And, and I think he, he picked the right mode for that because of course, Darth Vader, you know, in the movies, he's best known for just kind of just, just dominating the people around him and just being a threatening presence to all the Imperial officers and whatnot. Whereas Zahn takes a lot of care in demonstrating that Thrawn is, he's taking another route toward power or around power which is not to say he is—he doesn't have his own ruthless streak, as evidenced by the death of our good friend Chris Peterson. But once again, another another way in which Chris Peterson's death was not in vain. Not only did it, you know, make the tractor beam crews shape up and you know and and, and ship up, but also I think it, it demonstrate you know it was a nice kind of character moment demonstrating that yeah you know despite his his slickness and his you know, his investment in his crew and whatever, they're still a means to his end and they're still disposable to him. Maybe not disposable in the sense that he'll throw their lives away in a hopeless attack, say it's Louis Vaughn, but if he needs to make a point, he's not above murdering someone to make it. So again, I, th- I thought that was very, I thought that was very deftly done. I- I'm not going to say that heir to the empire is a subtle book. <laughs> it-, it is not. <laughs> It is because Star Wars is not a subtle property and that's fine. But I do think that Timothy Zahn did a really good job of picking his moments to, to showcase kind of aspects of, of Thrawn's personality. Um, I, I'm a, I don't know. I, I, uh, all in all, this ends up being Ronnie, Correct me if I'm wrong. You had not read this before, right? Nope. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We talked. Yeah, that's right. We talked about that in the first episode. So this was this was one that I had some memory of, and I really didn't know what to expect going back to. And I'm gonna say right now, I'm, I'm putting my money down. I'm agreeing. Three out of five stars. Uh, this was this was a fun read, and it was much better than I imagined it would be. And I, I think that says more about how I remembered my taste as a reader at age twelve. Than it does about Thrawn's skill as a writer, because I think clearly, like you cosmopolitan twelve-year-old tastes. <laughs> well, I just assumed like, well, if this was a book that I really liked when I was twelve years old, it might not be that great, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, col- color me pleasantly surprised. Honestly, it's been a much, it's been a more positive experience than I thought. Despite all the, you know, we like to rag, we like to razz, we like to poke a little fun, but in the end. This was a this was cool. I'm I'm looking forward to continuing and seeing what all the kind of what, what kind of shenanigans all of our characters Thrawn, get up to. I, one thing I think uh, Zahn could have done is uh, pick up the pace on a couple of subplots because we still don't yeah. know what Joris Kabath is actually going to do. Yeah, he really disappeared and, from the book completely. And I think that uh, the Mara Jade revelation could have uh, unfolded a lot earlier. I agree. Yeah. And I mean, maybe it will. I, I can see it dragging out for the sake of like, I don't know, like maybe he felt like Luke and Mara had to have some other beats before that. But I also don't think that we, the audience had to find out the same time Luke Skywalker did. I'm, I'm with you. I think that could have been done. That could have been done as confiding with card earlier in the book. And I think having that knowledge would have made Mara's, responses and reactions a little richer a, a little more rich with meaning for the reader as they're reading it um and my, yeah, my last yeah. point which is just me reiterating is i i recall you saying in in one of the notes that uh editor betsy was pregnant at the time of uh of the writing of this book <laughs> yes she was pregnant with her first child so here's my advice to uh timothy uh back in time Literally just talk to your editor about what being pregnant is like. <laughs> That's really good advice. 
And I, I think he, he really could have used it. But, you know, uh, we're Monday morning. I'm not like Monday one of those people that says now. that everybody needs a sensitivity reader. But, like, seriously, just talk to a pregnant woman once. Just to at least get the gist. Yeah, absolutely. So having put a pin in our uh, thoughts on Heir to the Empire, we turn now to what some people call really the the main event, the, the real draw of the show, honestly. Uh, because Thronderdome is not just the world's premier uh, Star Wars novels recap podcast for Gen X by Gen X. It is also the site of some of the most astonishing feats of mental prowess you will ever experience in your life. That is right. As Ronnie and I go into the Thronderdome, our debate segment where he and I pit our massive brains against one another in some of the most pressing issues of the day to come to a conclusion of absolute, irrevocable, eternal truth. And Ronnie, what will we be fighting over on this particular instance? I'm, I'm glad you asked. It's city life versus country life. <laughs> ah yes uh well as as residents of those two polar opposite states of the united states alabama and wisconsin i mean really it just one is the opposite of the other when you think about it uh you looked up statistically us? that wisconsin is 70 percent urban and and uh alabama is what 19 percent 59 percent 50 a close. healthy majority Healthy majority. Um, <laughs> anyway, well, I guess, listeners, that gives away that uh, our sides in this battle. Uh, Ronnie is taking the side of city life. He's going to be our city mouse. And I, uh, Daniel, will be your humble country mouse on, uh, on this discussion of the ideal, uh, the ideal mode for human thriving. And uh, Ronnie, I, I've gone first the last couple times, so I'm going to kick this your way. Uh, sell me. Sell me on the concrete jungle, why don't you? Okay, I, I have a couple of points here. The first point is, uh, in city life, there's noise and pollution everywhere, so you don't have to see bullshit stars anywhere. Um, there are more places to go and things to do. There's, like, the movie theater, the discotheque, the bodegas, adult bookshops, etc. Um, it's easier to be someone different in the city, as opposed to the small-mindedness of country life. Uh, mm-hmm. you can be, you can be bisexual, you can be trans, you can be, uh, Middle Eastern, all those things. Uh, <laughs> um, let's see, uh-huh. uh, city life is Democrats party run, so it's full of crime and crime is cool. Mm. And, uh, mm-hmm. most importantly, in city life, tomfoolery, discouraged. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, that's an interesting set of uh, kind of bullet points there. I, as, uh, are, are you opening the floor for my rebuttal? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, well, I would say that uh, if really if you're if you're looking for pollution, buddy, country life is where it's at because you know we country boys love pouring motor oil right into the earth where it came from. Uh, of course, you have all the agricultural runoff that uh, flows into the rivers and creates algal blooms in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, you got all that good stuff going. All manner of pesticides are just going to be just soaked into your skin just from uh, being sprayed all over the place uh, out here where we grow uh, God's own crop uh, soybeans. And really, if you think about it, like what, what, is, what is city life except uh, a crude approximation of country life, Right. What do people in the cities like to have in their in their little city hovels, in their little tenement shacks and whatnot? They like to have house plants. Come out to the country, bro. We got plants everywhere. They'll knock your socks off. I mean, it's got, we got corn plants. We got dandelions. We got uh, crabgrass. We got tumbleweeds. It's all here, and you don't even have to worry about it because outside takes care of it. And speaking of outside, here in the country, you can spend a lot of time outside. You can go mudding. You can go fishing. Oh, you can go noodling. Ryan, do you know what noodling is? No. All right, shit, dude. Okay. Noodling, and I am not making this up. Noodling is when you go down to the muddy riverbank, and it's a manner of catching catfish. So you go and you find their little catfish will make little burrows in the sides of the riverbank, 
And so you reach your arm in and, and grip you a catfish and pull it out. How often do you do this? <laughs> I have never once done that. Um, I am aware of its existence. I have hung out with people who have done that. But uh, I myself have not done that. You are perhaps but it a is an representative of country life. Well, I wasn't going to bring that up. I was going to try to engage in the debate in good faith. But now that you mention it, I happen to be a resident of the large metro area in Birmingham. I, I am not actually so. Uh, let let us recall what it's bumpkin. actually named. Stinkton? It's stink, Stinkton? Look, just because... Hey, just because for the last seven weeks there's been a landfill fire in Moody and the wind has been blowing the smoke over across the Birmingham metro area and you can catch a whiff of it most days does not mean that Stinkton is an appropriate name for my fair city. Uh, but to uh, conclude exhibit, my thoughts... Exhibit B, uh, I'm going to introduce uh, your car. <laughs> Well, see, the thing is, I'm going to finish my thoughts, and the, and my car comes up in it. Okay? okay. So you may call you may call this uh, this country city that I live in, Stinkton. You know, you you may want to call it Trashburg, or what have you. But let me ask you something. Have you ever loaded up your Mazda hatchback with your recyclables because where you live doesn't have recycling pickup, so you have to drive a car full of trash down to the recycle the public recycle dump next to the high school football stadium and it's it's a it's a it's a warm summer afternoon and there's a there's a there's a night uh thunderstorm happening on down the valley you can you can you can see some of the lightning flashes you can hear some of the thunder rolling down but uh but really you're surrounded by the 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 song of the tree frogs and the crickets cuz it's just had a big rain the tree frogs are loving it and they fill the whole air and you look up and you see the constellation of Orion, just right there, perfectly framed between the uh, ridges in the Ridge and Valley, right there in central Alabama. And just everything's perfect. Everything's perfect right there. You ever had that? No. Case closed. I, uh, there it is. That's my argument. That's a real, that's one of those moments where I feel like, you know what? Maybe the universe ain't so bad. And I get to have that here in the country. Thank you. See, now you're using garbage words like ain't. City life is a land of contrast. There's crime and there's garbage everywhere. But that's where culture is. There's no culture in sitting on the porch, drinking mint julep. (laughs) Well, that's that's fair. Waiting for your kids to get back from some, uh, some tomfoolery. Indeed, we do encourage tomfoolery. I would say country life is also full of contradictions. There's crime, there's trash in my car, uh, and but you're right. Like uh, I guess when it comes to culture, but you know what country life makes up for in spades is uh, e- empty vacant lots. Just kind of nothing, nothing going on there. Oh, I thought you were going to say math. No, I mean that was covered in crime. You know we have that. Uh, I would just like to say there's there's nothing quite as like if you're if you're into like meditation and like mind like clearing your mind, there's nothing I'll clear your mind faster than looking out over some overgrown brown space that uh, no one's ever going to have a use for and that they've been trying to sell for like 20 years. I mean, it's it's beautiful. You ever, you ever look out over a field of corn stubble? God, I've looked at glorious. vacant lots before. Yeah, but those are city vacant lots. You don't even you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you're talking about there in your hoity-toity Madison Avenue scene. I assume there's a Madison Avenue in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, That'd be stupid. You and That's your... like, is there a Birmingham Avenue in Stinkton? Um, likely not. No, we do know we we have we do know there's a Thrawn Avenue in Tampa though. Or at least there better be by now. I hope they have like a a, a Walk of Fame in Tampa. And Timothy's on stars on it. Ah, my final point. Tampa is city life. You you can't fucking you can't yes tar all all of Alabama with the brush of ruralness because we have a fifty nine percent urbanization rate and call anything in Florida urban and city life. Come on, they have a baseball team. QED. They do have a, yeah, whoa, 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 okay, they have a baseball team, fine, whatever, 
Birmingham does have a professional football team now in the USFL. In fact, every that game of count. the inaugural it's a bullshit every league. game every game of the inaugural USFL season was played in Birmingham. Isn't that cool? I bet I bet <laughs> they don't even have like real helmets. They just have those those uh leather flap like ones. Like the leather <laughs> like the leather biplane pilot helmets. Oh, maybe so. I don't know. I do. I don't think anyone has died though, so it's not like as good as the XFL. Uh, hey, speaking of which, is I it, dare is it you country to go to me? a USFL game this year. Hey, you know, I might. You know, I'm going to ask you one last question before we wrap this up. Is it country of me that my high school AP US history teacher uh, left the school to go become an offensive coordinator for an XFL team? That is the countryest thing that could ever be possible. <laughs> Well, it would be less country enough. if you hey. said that he left to go corn husking. <laughs> I I will uh I will I will leave it with that then, I guess. Uh who who won, Ronnie? Who Ronnie. who who emerges victorious? You always say that. I don't know why I keep letting you decide who wins. That's a real flaw in our Because I'm the baby, gotta here. love me. Yeah, you're the baby, gotta love you. Well, in any case, I hope this has been illuminating and enlightening. For you listeners out there, Country Mouse versus City Mouse, uh, who will win? We'll leave it up to We Report, You Decide, here on Thronderdome. Uh, but with all that, uh, I would just like to say as a little as a little piece here, well, actually, I'm going to save my maudlin stuff. I'm going to save my crying for a little bit. Just, to, just so you all know, listeners, we are going to take a little break from the main kind of line of the show. Uh, this is our season break. So we have wrapped up season one. We will be returning with Season 2 for the second book in the Thrawn trilogy, Dark Force Rising. Uh, But in the meantime, please take a look out for some bonus episodes. I still have to make good on my promise to watch Marcel the Shell with Shoes on, the feature film. We have a couple... We have at least one guest lined up to talk about Grand Admiral Thrawn as he appears in other media in the Star Wars universe, you know, other than novels. Um... And also we have a very special uh, episode we're going to be putting together where we look at some of the notes that for chapters uh, before I discovered that there was such a thing as author notes for this book. Uh, so the first, the first few chapters, of course, you will remember, we didn't have the author notes uh, available to us. So I'm calling it the Lost Levels. We'll be going back and, and taking a look at those. So, uh, so just you know, keep an eye on the feed. You'll still get some new material while we're in between seasons. But we do uh, look forward to... Uh, getting it uh, back up and running with season two here after a, uh, a hiatus with all that to say, Ronnie, I would like to thank you. Thank you for joining me on this project for uh, taking the dive to dive into 30 year old uh, expanded universe properties for an IP that you don't particularly care for anymore. Well, you're welcome. And with that succinct and taciturn response, this is probably a good place to uh, to say goodnight. Well, uh, no, no, I, I've, uh, I've enjoyed this a lot. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad for that. Right? I've had a very good time too. Buddy. Exactly, you know, getting getting on getting on the old horn and just you know chewing the fat about uh, Dravis and Talon Card and all of our favorites. It's a good time, and be prepared for more good times. When Season 2, Thronderdome returns for Season 2, Dark Force Rising, uh, wherever fine podcasts are sold. Good night, all. Goodbye. <laughs>